Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, December 14th, 2009. Experiencing a heat wave here now in the Middle West, middle part of the, uh, well, you know, Midwest. 50 degrees. It's a veritable heat wave. Last week we were in the teens, now we're in the 50s. Don't know if I should break out the suntan lotion, the, uh, the, the man, the, the, you know, the, the, the long shorts that I like to wear and, you know, go outside and, you know, get a nice suntan. You know, I just, <clears throat> weird. You stick around here in the Midwest long enough, the, the weather changes every five minutes. I hope you had a good weekend. I did, and I'm looking at the... <laughs> I've got too much program and not enough time today. Uh, yeah, this is going to be all kinds of interesting. Okay, let's see here. You know what? Uh, I'm going to dispense with the pleasantries and just dive right into the program. Do you feel a little rushed? Well... You know the routine. Pull up a chair, make yourself comfortable. You can enjoy an adult beverage. We don't have a problem with that. And uh, fuzzy bunny slippers if you are in cold climates. Of course, today, because uh, it's 50 degrees here in the uh, portion of the Midwest that I'm at, well, that that just doesn't even qualify as cold anymore to me. So, uh, you know, fuzzy bunny slippers, that's kind of iffy. I, I, I think I should come up with like a hard and fast degree rule if it's, you know, if it's below 30 degrees, hey, absolutely. If it's not, maybe not. It, well, but then again, if you're used to, uh, you know, if you have like mild temperatures all year round and you're, the low is in like Southern California in the winter is like in the 50s, well, you know, you got to have a time when you can put the fuzzy bunny slippers on. And 30 degrees rarely happens in Southern California. So, you know, I got, I got to work on this. Maybe some kind of a sliding scale. All right. Today's program, like I said, I've got too much program, not enough time today. Uh, we're going to begin a series uh, once a day until I decide we're done with this. And it could be three days, it could be five, I don't know. Uh, we're going to be listening to uh, sound bites from uh, ELCA Bishop Mark Hansen's uh, town hall meeting. And uh, the goal there is to, uh, we're going to take pick apart the things that he is saying and really try to do some biblical work here, roll up our sleeves and, and, and really kind of find out what's, you know, what's really going wrong here. Because there's a lot going wrong there with the, the ELCA and Bishop Mark Hansen, especially on the homosexuality issue. 
And then we've got news today. We've got uh, we got a headline that reads: uh, "Modern youth ministry is unbiblical." Um, it, it says uh, a ministry leader claims young Christians are then called. Then we got another headline that says: "Young Christians called to restore original original reputation of the church." <laughs> huh? <laughs> okay, uh, we'll kind of find out. What that means, I thought Christians were called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. Uh, anyway, and then we've got another uh, one that says, Tens of thousands march to press leaders on climate issue. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury plays into the story. We'll be listening, uh, looking at that story. And then if we get to it, depends on time today, Schools in the UK are being criticized for replacing the baby Jesus with sheep uh, during nativity plays. It kind of brings new meaning to uh, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Anyway, we'll be looking at that. And then our sermon review today has one of those I told you so moments in it. Uh, it comes from a church called LCBC. That They lovingly refer to themselves as LCBC, which is short for Lives Changed by Christ in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Head pastor there is David Ashcraft. And the sermon is entitled, Things You Can Ignore But Shouldn't. Uh, and the first in this, and this, that's the name of the sermon series. The first in the sermon in the series is called The Voices in My Head. So you apparently don't want to be ignoring the voices in your head. But it's got one of those... I told you so moments in it, and uh, for a long time now, I have been making the claim in these seeker-driven churches uh, that you don't need an an inerrant uh, Bible. You don't need an inerrant scripture. You just need good advice that works. And uh, I'll tell you, David Ashcraft all but comes out and says that in the sermon review, so you definitely don't want to miss that in hour number two of Fighting for the Faith today. All right, so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and uh, this is the first in our series that we're going to be doing here on uh, reviewing uh, some what I consider to be uh, very important sound bites uh, made by ELCA Bishop Mark Hansen at his recent uh, town hall meeting that he, a virtual town hall meeting that he held just a couple weeks ago. Here is uh, Bishop Mark Hansen. If multiple bound conscious hold mutually contradictory positions on an issue. Hold on a second. That guy that's uh, talking here, he's asking a question of uh, Bishop Mark Hansen regarding uh, bound consciences, which is a, just a crazy idea. Well, let me back this up. This, listen carefully to this question, and you'll notice that uh, Bishop Mark Hansen doesn't quite answer the question, but listen carefully to what the question is. If multiple bound conscious hold mutually contradictory positions on an issue, to what authority does the ELCA turn to resolve the conflict? Okay, that's the question. This is a great question, okay? Because the ELCA in their recent uh, uh, decision regarding uh, blessing, uh, ho- practicing homosexuals as clergy people within their church uh, kept referring to bound consciences. Now, this, which is kind of a weird way of putting it, but this is a brand new idea. This is a brand new argument on their part. And so the question is, is what if you got two people who are claiming to have bound consciences that come up with mutually exclusive, uh, claims? Let me give you an example. Okay. I have, uh, a, a gal that I am talking to on a regular basis in the emergent church. And we have completely different, 
uh, views regarding homosexuality. She's got a bound conscience that says that homosexuality is okay, it's not a sin, and I quote, have a bound conscience that says, oh no, the scriptures say that it is most clearly a sin. So here we've both got bound consciences, apparently. So the question is, uh, what happens when you got two people claiming to have bound consciences with mutually exclusive claims? Uh, who breaks the tie? That, <laughs> who breaks the tie there? And, uh, well, let's listen to, uh, Bishop Mark Hansen's answer. I think this is one of the, uh, most pressing and understandable questions that has flowed out of the churchwide assembly action and the text of the actions. Oh, no, no kidding, because nowhere in the Bible does it say that you can have a bound conscience and that makes it okay for you to ordain things that God has forbidden. What do we mean by bound conscience? Yeah, what ex <laughs> that's a great question, Mark. What exactly do you mean by that? Luther talks about the bondage of the will, but that's not a good thing. That basically talks about original sin, how by nature... Um, we are all born at war with God. Uh, our wills are in bondage to sin, Satan, our sinful nature. And uh, by nature, we cannot love God and will not uh, serve God and refuse to obey him. I mean, this whole bound conscience thing that Mark Hansen's talking about sounds a lot like uh, what Luther describes in the bondage of the will. But see, it's not a good thing. And I think we cannot expect that to be a closed question, but it needs to be an open conversation. I think, let's admit, that phrase in and of itself is fairly new. Oh, yeah, not only is it new, it's completely novel. Which, what does that tell you, Mark? Uh, why should we be appealing to, quote, bound consciences? It's complete subterfuge. And it can be confusing, because we know the Luther quote of my conscience is bound to the word of God, Oh, right, Luther. Yeah, he said his conscience was bound to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. Um, Luther, his conscience was bound to the word of God. Um, you see, in that particular case, by the way, the, um, what is that? Was that the Diet of Worms? I think it was. Um, so Luther is there, and he's before the king, you know, the, the emperor, the, uh, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, and he's told to recant. So here we've got the Catholic Church on the one side, and they're bound conscience. They're conscience bound uh, that uh, that Luther is um, is basically undermining the authority of the church and his ideas regarding uh, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Well, that that their consciences are bound to uh, reject that. And Luther, on the other hand, his conscience is bound that uh, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. But Luther, when he was told to recant, said that he couldn't because it's not that his conscience was just bound. It was bound to the word of God, and he was appealing to a higher authority. Yeah, see, that's kind of the, the issue there. The, remember, the question on the table is, what do you do with when two people have bound consciences with completely mutually exclusive truth claims? They both can't be right, okay? They both cannot be right. So how do you break the tie? Let me give you an example that we can all kind of tap into here. Um, I, I'm going to just hazard a guess here that 99.9% .9 of you listening to Fighting for the Faith 
think that uh, that that the Nazi Holocaust of killing six million Jews was immoral. Now, the reason why I'm not saying a hundred percent is because I've seen some of the emails that come in from some of you, and it makes me wonder exactly what you believe. Uh, that being said, we'll move along. Um, so here's the deal: ninety-nine point nine percent. I'm fairly confident would say that killing. Six million Jews in gas chambers and in uh, concentration camps was immoral, that it was truly a sin and wrong. Okay, But see, the thing is, is that you make that claim not based upon your, quote, bound conscience or because you just your conscience bound to think that, you know, uh, genocide is a bad thing, but because we you have a higher authority to appeal to. And that higher authority is the word of God. If, by the way, uh, how we decided what is right and what is wrong was based upon uh, consensus within a culture, that you know, then what would happen is is that each and every nation state would decide for themselves what was right or wrong uh, based upon 50, you know whatever fifty point one percent of the population believed was wrong. Okay, that's no way of determining right and wrong. You know what happens? Uh, you know, remember Hitler was elected. Um, so, uh, you know, he, here, Nazi Germany, uh, under Hitler's leadership, um, they came up with, quote, the final solution. Uh, and, uh, in their regime, uh, Jews were demonized, uh, Jews were exterminated. And, uh, and it, it, you could say, according to the Nazi, uh, culture, uh, that wasn't a sin. According to Nazi culture, their consciences were bound when it came to, you know, they, they actually, their consciences were bound to believe that um, killing Jews was a, was a good thing to do. And then you have the rest of the world who basically think that that was a complete atrocity, with probably the exception of uh, several uh, Muslim states. Um, anyway, so you've got... You got Nazi culture saying it's uh, right. You've got uh, the Allied forces fighting against the, uh, the the Germans, who obviously took a dim view on it because they rounded up the guys who were responsible for these concentration camps and put them on trial for war crimes. Now, here's the deal: it, 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 when the United States put the Nazis on trial for war crimes. Was it just because 50.1% of the U.S. population or, and, or more believed that that was wrong? Or was it truly wrong and immoral? And you're going, well, okay, I think it was truly wrong and immoral. Well, it was. But how do you make that assessment? Who breaks the tie between Nazi Germany and the United States? I mean, after all... Uh, Nazi Germany and the United States were, you know, th- th- who could they appeal to? They were both uh, duly established uh, governments, uh, duly established nation states, and uh, both can make equal claim that, uh, you know, hey, you know, um, God is the one who institutes governments, right? So, I mean, it, you know, if the Nazis think the killing Jews is okay and the United States thinks that it's not, who's to say that uh, either one of them's right? Answer, God's word. God's word says, thou shalt not murder. Now, by the way, when we say when we say the commandment, thou shalt not kill, the better word for that is murder. Because here's the deal. 
if what was meant by God is thou shalt not ever, ever, ever kill anybody, uh, then it wouldn't make any sense because uh, when you have the children of Israel getting going into the promised land, uh, they go they go on a war rampage and they kill and destroy. God orders them to kill and to destroy. And in some senses, in some cases, he said, don't leave anybody alive. Kill everybody. So the same God who gave the command, thou shalt not, quote, kill, is also the one that commanded the Israelites to kill. So how do you reconcile that? Real simple. Look at the language. Remember, God inspired the words themselves. And when you look at the language, you find out that that word for kill is is better understood as murder okay so god has placed into the you know basically it, there are times in which a person can actually take the life of another human being and it does not run afoul of god's command thou shalt not kill keep just keep this in mind so anyway but coming back to the whole hitler thing how do we know? That was systematic murder. Therefore, it was absolutely wrong. And the way we know it's wrong is because God has revealed in his word what is truly right and what is truly wrong, what is moral and what is immoral. And according to what God says, the guy who gets to break the tie, um, murder is always wrong, always a sin. So we move on. But we've begun to learn through scholars like Timothy Wengert and others that Luther also talked about a conscience not only bound to the Word of God, but a conscience bound to the Word of God is then freed to be bound also to one's neighbor. And the whole question of how do we move from consciences bound to the Word of God to then ask how does my conscience bound to the word of God inform how I live with and for my neighbor. It takes a community to struggle with that. The word of God is... Uh, no, God's word supersedes every community. Any, quote, community that, seems, that claims to be gathering in the name of God that rejects what God's word clearly says in regards to how we are loved to love our neighbor. By the way, Luke 24, look, look it up. The tail end of the chapter, Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. So first and foremost, the way that we as Christians show our love to our neighbor is calling them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins uh, won by Jesus Christ on the cross. Okay, And that applies to homosexuals, heterosexuals, uh, murderers, thieves, uh, liars, uh, covetors, people who uh, disobey their parents. So, you know, the the first and foremost, you know, the way we love our neighbor is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to them. Okay, so we do not love our neighbor when we turn a blind eye to their sin and do not call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, including our homosexual neighbors. It's clear: Thou shalt not kill. But somehow, consciences bound to that word of God have moved from that word of God to some a, a position, say, but I can still faithfully participate in military service. Right, and anybody who comes to that conclusion is wrestling correctly with the word of God, looking at the full counsel of what God's word means when it comes to thou shalt not kill. 
and engage in what I determined to be a just war. And others, bound to the same word of God in their conscience, have been led to say, for the sake of the neighbor, I am a pacifist. I cannot take up arms. And Luther even said there will be selective moments of such conscientious objection. Well, it t- Okay, just because somebody decides that they're going to be a pacifist does not take away from the absolutely certain and firm fact that God's word, when you look at it, the full counsel of the word of God, when it comes to the, the commandment, thou shalt not kill, does leave it you know, open for somebody to engage in military service and participate in a just war. It takes a community to understand how we live constantly in that tension. No, it doesn't take a community. It takes somebody just sitting down and reading the Word of God and, and wrestling with the text. Plain and simple. And I think we have work to do on the whole notion of bound conscience. It's been called for by synods. No, you don't have any work to do regarding bound conscience. It's a completely uh, artificial a category designed to create subterfuge and uh, circumvent the clear teaching of the Word of God. Such as the Southwestern Pennsylvania Synod, through their Synod Council, our own church council, uh, uh, Carlos in November, responded to that, acknowledging we have work to do. And continually we say, as we say as Lutheran Christians in our confession and in our Constitution, we live under the authority of Scripture. And we have to keep asking each other, what does that mean? It means means that God's word is authoritative and gets to decide what's right and what's wrong, not you in your community uh, with people with, quote, bound consciences. It means first and foremost for me, the word of God has power. It can authorize, create faith, bring people to living faith. And it's going to shape how people of faith live together in the body of Christ and live in the world. Now, for that interpretive conversation, we need each other. Let's not pull away and only talk to people that think they have that all figured out, because for me, that's a daily question. Yeah, see, by leaving it as a daily question and not as an answered question in God's Word, it makes it possible for you to engage in all kinds of mischief and claim that it has God's blessing and that the Holy Spirit led you into it. Uh, No, he didn't. Uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't stutter. The Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. The Holy Spirit would never one day say, uh, the, when if a man lies with another man as he would a woman, that it's an abomination before the Lord, and then say, oh, that's okay. Forget what I just said there, you know. Bound consciences, uh, it's okay for you to love your neighbor in such a way that uh, you can bless uh, same-sex marriages in the church and have uh, an unrepentant homosexual be your pastor. No. So the reason why he wants things to be an open question in an open conversation in a community is so that you can never actually get to the biblical answer uh, to what the text actually says. And remember, the question was, what do you do with pe- when two people have uh, mutually exclusive claims, both claiming bound conscience? How do you break the tie? Well, the answer, Mark, is, is that God gets to break the tie, and he's he, he's done that because he's left us a book with all kinds of tie-breaking information in it. <sighs> anyway, just one of the – so that's our first in, in the series of uh, uh, sound bites that we're going to be reviewing of uh, Bishop Mark Hansen from the ELCA in his recent town hall 
uh, uh, meeting that he held, a virtual town hall meeting. So, And now we're going to switch gears and go into the news here. From the Christian Post, the headline reads, Modern Youth Ministry Unbiblical Ministry Leader Claims. All right, who wrote this? Hang on a second here. Wet the fingers. Okay, Audrey Barrick. Audrey Barrick of the Christian Post wrote this. Uh, The story reads, Scott T. Brown, an advocate of church reformation and the strengthening of families, claims that modern youth ministry is indisputably unbiblical. Now that is a controversial claim. And just for the sake of argument, I'm going to go with him. I'm going to say, yeah, Scott, you're probably right. But let's find out what he means by this. Addressing Christian leaders and families at a conference on the sufficiency of Scripture on Friday, Brown, director of the National Center for Family Integrated Churches, asserted that the, quote, philosophy and practice of comprehensive age-segregated programmatic youth ministry is contrary to the ministry patterns of Christ. You know, this is a good point, okay? For years, I have had a problem with the idea of what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my children and I'm going to drop them off and they're going to have children's church and uh, and youth or junior high church and high school church while the adults go have adult church. There's something seriously wrong with that that uh, methodology, age segregation. And so I think one of the one of the bonuses and one of the strengths of uh, confessional liturgical churches is that when it comes to church itself, uh, the you know word and sacrament, uh, everybody from uh, from infants all the way up to the most aged in the congregation are all together. I think that's the right way to be doing it. Because uh, here's the deal: one of the things I've learned is that uh, the way you know the way Satan works is he works off of the divide and conquer mentality. And so if you're if you know if if your children are being segregated from you during church and have their own thing going on um I, I my suspicion would be that there's kind of there's all kinds of mischief and false doctrine going on in there and uh your kids probably uh need to uh <clears throat> be spending time with you and not with that youth pastor just my I do not have the highest opinions of a lot of the youth pastors that, that are out there uh, really ridiculous ideas being kicked about by these guys and taught from their, quote, pulpits. Anyway, let's continue. Let's see here. Age-segregated youth ministry trained youth ministers and programs to draw and entertain youth are a new invention in the history of the church, Brown said. Yep, I agree. Uh, quote, modern youth ministry is also inherently destructive in its impact. It divides the church by uh, creating generational division and multiple cultures instead of a unified body, he maintained. Yep, that's another great point. An elder at Hope Baptist Church in Wake Forest, North Carolina, Brown has denounced uh, has denounced the disappearance of the family life in modern church and has expressed the need to preserve it. Brown's fellow church member, Tony Vestal, made arguments on the National Center for Family Integrated Churches website taking a similar stance. Quote, This age segregation allows for the real possibility that children and adults can be completely uh, socialized by the greater culture in which they live instead of through parental discipleship and uh, be void of any firm foundational understanding of truth of the world around them, Vestal contends. Quote, this slippery slope of age segregation 
leads to the isolation of an individual's perspective to one that only looks outward from within the confines of their age group and excludes the lessons that can and should be learned from previous generations, he adds. Yeah, that's a great point, too. Yeah, not finding anything I disagree with here. Uh, the National Center for the for Family Integrated Churches holds that the biblical order and unity of the family are crucial to the stability and health of the church of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, churches have contributed to the breakdown of the family, uh, the center claims, calling modern youth ministry a weed that gained root in the church. Brown exhorted conference attendees on Friday to uproot it and to replace it with God's beautiful plan for youth ministry. Quote, I hope that we are now at the end of this 50-year failed experiment, he stated. Quote, we now have almost three generations of children who had no father who walked beside them, but a youth group instead. It's obvious that, uh, that half a decade of youth group does not produce young people who are passionate about the church. Research and estimates by youth workers have suggested that a majority of youth group seniors drop out of church after graduating. The Fuller Youth Institute realized, uh, released findings uh, from its uh, longitudinal study of youth groups graduates showing that about 40 to 50 percent of the students struggle with their faith. Brown insisted that though he rejects youth groups, he is not rejecting ministry to youth. Rather, he supports and promotes generous investments in teaching scripture to youth. Quote, but we must do it in God's way, he stressed. Uh, one place Christians can start from is marriage. God honoring marriage, Brown said, is the most important means of youth ministry. When husbands love their wives, the children get the picture of what Christ does for his bride. The sufficiency of scripture conference taking place at the Northern, uh, Northern Kentucky Convention Center ended on Saturday. This was written by Audrey Barrick, Christian Post reporter. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think, uh, Scott Brown has some very important things to say here. And uh, listen, I am I am firmly against, and I think it's absolutely dangerous uh, if you're dropping off your kids at a quote youth group and trusting them to basically somebody who's really technically just a couple of years older than them to quote entertain them and quote teach them God's word. Yeah, I'm telling you, uh, a lot of the mischief that I've seen, the, the worst mischief I've seen in the churches, goes on in these quote youth groups. Instead, really, what needs to happen is is that uh, the entire church needs to come together, oldest to, uh, to the youngest, and uh, do church together. And then I'm all for Sunday schools being segregated, but, the, but for them to be really under the, uh, the authority and the, uh, um, you know, let's say close observation of uh, the pastoral staff. And, uh, and, and what should be happening is, is that there should be a lot of Christian catechesis, intense Bible study, and uh, helping to develop uh, kids who are capable, well-equipped in God's Word, and capable of understanding what their faith is, how it's grounded in Scripture, how it's grounded in Christ, and uh, and uh, and what the what the Christian faith really is. I think these uh, programmatic, entertainment-based youth groups uh, playground of the devil a lot of times. You know, in many cases, they become the playground of the devil, and it's no wonder that. Uh, the majority of kids, after they graduate, uh, you know, and go off to college, uh, end up leaving the church altogether. All they were, all that happened to them is they were entertained uh, when they were in church. They were not taught the Christian faith. Shallow discipleship based upon entertainment can't, cannot, cannot uh, pass the faith off to the next generation. 
All right, we are up on our first break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to continue with the news. And uh, and then in our second hour today, we've got a sermon review from a church called LCBC entitled uh, Things You Can Ignore But Shouldn't, The Voices in My Head. LCBC stands for Lives Changed by Christ. And there's a big I told you so moment uh, in that particular sermon review, so you definitely do not want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That is facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait! Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death.
Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there, and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. <laughs> and just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. We are back. Warning, this program is not politically correct. I refuse to abide by the artificial rules of language and speech that have been imposed by people upon our society. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means uh, we survive based upon the generous contributions of our listeners. You can support us a few ways. The primary way that we're looking for right now is for people to join our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. If you haven't done this, you really, really, this is a good time to do so. Uh, the way you do it is to visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. It is a mere $6.95 a month. And over the weekend, I was able to do some programming over there at PayPal. Here's the good news. As pay real close attention because when you join the uh, join the crew at the end of the when you once your uh, your uh, crew membership is processed, there is a button on that screen, the the very screen that says uh, you know that you, that's your receipt that says click, you know, Pirate Christian Cove access info click here. So you don't even have to wait for an email address anymore because what I've noticed is is that Several of you uh, that have joined the crew, and I've sent emails to you, and uh, they've been bounced back to me. And so, if this is if this is you, if you are a member of the Pirate Christian Radio uh, uh, crew, and you haven't received your uh, inform your informational email on how to access the Pirate Christian Cove, email me at cove at piratechristianradio.com. And uh, we'll send that off to you because I've I've received uh, at least 25 bounce back uh, emails saying that the emails were undeliverable. So what we fixed that now. And so when you join the you can you get access to the cove the second that your uh, that your uh, your co your membership is processed there. So I want to let you all know that. Also, if you would like to donate a flat amount, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on the heels of that story from the Sufficiency Conference, we've got a headline here that uh, has got me scratching my head. 
The headline reads, Young Christians Called to Restore Original Reputation of Church. Um, wait a second. Aren't young Christians uh, called to do the thing that Jesus has called them to do, uh, that he's called all Christians to do, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations? Um, <clears throat> yeah, we got a problem here. This story is written by uh, Lillian Kwan of the Christian Post, and it reads, Teenagers across the country are joining a massive movement to pick up where the early church left off, demonstrating the sacrificial love of Jesus. Oh, no, come on. We're not supposed to, quote, demonstrate the sacrificial. We're supposed to proclaim the sacrificial love of Jesus. One Million Acts of Sacrificial Love is a new campaign started through the partnership of Teen Mania Ministries and Hillsong United. Oh, that doesn't surprise me. Hillsong United, folks. Uh, Word faith. uh, Blab it and grab it plus prosperity heretics. Um, Great. Okay. Quote, as we look back on the first three centuries of Christianity, they are all about sacrifice. They literally changed the world through their sacrificial acts of love, Ron Luce, president and founder of Teen Mania, told the Christian Post. Quote, it only makes sense that we pick up that baton, carry on that heritage, and particularly demonstrate acts of love to the least loved people of the world who have the least opportunity to see acts, the acts of the love of God. Ron, um, I get the feeling I'm going to have to call you and see if I can convince you to come on Fighting for the Faith Somehow these guys never want to come on my program. I just I have no idea why. Anyway, um, let me the <clears throat> let me read this again. As we look back at the first three centuries of Christianity, they are all about sacrifice. No, actually they're not. They're all about the sacrifice. They're all about the people who proclaimed the once for all sacrifice for our sins, the one sacrifice that propitiated the wrath of God, and that would be the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, granted, in the first three centuries of Christianity, there were martyrs aplenty. Okay, Christianity was uh, was an outlaw religion highly persecuted by the Roman emperors in the first few centuries after Christ's death and resurrection. And so those martyrs, they, funny enough, the church never referred to them as, quote, sacrificers. They were always, quote, martyrs or witnesses. So the church always referred to them as, uh, as witnesses, as martyrs of Jesus Christ. And that's what a martyr is. It's a witness. They weren't they weren't sacrifices they were witnessing to the one true sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So Ron, we've got a problem here. Um your 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 perception regarding the quote reputation, original reputation of the church is really um off. Yeah, really 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 off because we're called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name and and proclaim the once for all sacrifice of Christ. We continue. The movement was launched in October, and since then, uh, other renowned Christian artists such as the Newsboys have become involved. Well, I mean, if the Newsboys are involved, maybe we shouldn't be. Um, Million Acts is a rally cry to young people to go all over the world and lay down their life for a period of time, whether it's through building homes, going on mission trips, helping inner-city kids, or simply sharing Christ in the skate parks or slums. 
Quote, as they go, they demonstrate the love of Jesus by their actions, proclaiming the grace of God that comes through salvation, Luce explained. Already, teen media has doubled the number of teens committed to sacrifice part of their Christmas break to go on a mission trip, according to Luce. One million acts of sacrificial love may bear a similar name to other million acts campaigns out there, such as million acts of kindness, million acts of green. But what sets this movement apart is its emphasis on sacrificial you see, that's the thing. Um, it's not really f- emphasizing the sacrificial um, <clears throat> of Christ. Um, just as these, uh, here we go. <clears throat> just as Jesus sacrificed to show love, and the early Christians did the same going through sacrificial acts of love at their own peril, young Christ followers today are being called to do the same. So that was what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was just showing us he loves us. I love you. Nail me to a tree, please. What is this? <clears throat> Quote, they laid down themselves because of the love of Christ that compels us, Lou said. Uh, Quote, what we're looking for is people that would join together and say, let's give followers of Christ not a new reputation, but the original reputation that they had when Jesus first left the planet. Um, uh, Mr. Luce, um, I would have to say that that's a pretty, um, loose interpretation of the early church. In fact, it's so loose. It's like not even accurate. Joel Houston, singer and songwriter of Sydney, Australia based Hillsong United says the campaign is all about love and love. It's not about me or what I can get out of it. Um, why do I feel like this is really all about money? Just I'm wondering what the where the money is. Quote, the idea that love costs and the idea that sacrifice is costly and being prepared to do that honestly for the good of somebody else, that's a beautiful thing, Houston states in a promotional video. Um, yeah, again, kind of a misunderstanding of the um, uh, atonement, what Christ was doing on the cross. And of uh, the role that Christians played in proclaiming the one sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is true that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. But he dies for them. He dies for their sins. It's his sacrifice, not the sacrifice of the Christians, that really is the big important thing. So much so that the early Christians did not consider their deaths to be, quote, sacrificial. Instead, they consider their deaths to be a witness to the one sacrifice of Christ. Yeah, so this call to uh, for young people to restore the original reputation of the church um, it, it's already going to fail out of the chute because uh, they these guys don't even understand what the original reputation of the church was. hi yi Okay, one more here. Tens of thousands marched to press leaders on climate issue. This story involves uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Okay, hey, here we go. I'm already frustrated. <laughs> Why am I already frustrated with this story? Because here's the reason why. Because uh, global warming and climate change is bunk. It's bogus. It's it's bupkis. It's 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 not real. The whole climate gate, if forged data emails, kind of prove that whole thing here. 
Would somebody send an email to uh, uh, to Rowan Williams, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and uh, get him up to speed here? <clears throat> Hang on a second. It, 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 the story reads, A large group of NGOs organized a climate change demonstration Saturday that mobilized as many as 100,000 participants to march from Copenhagen Cathedral in downtown Copenhagen to the Bella Center the view for COP15, the 15th United Nations Climate Change Conference. The demonstration organized under the theme Planet First, People First, focused on the environmental and humanitarian aspects of climate change and witnessed tens of thousands demanding a fair, ambitious, and binding climate deal at uh, COP15. Boy, I hope they don't come up with a, cl- a binding climate deal there because, if, uh, yeah, it, I just feel global uh, taxation coming as a result of it. <clears throat> the head of the Anglican Communion, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, spoke at the opening of the demonstration and called the march, quote, the most important event that we're likely to see in our lifetime. Hold on a second here. Um, the next sound you're going to hear is me beating my head against the desk. Hold on a second here. No, no. You've got to be kidding me. The most important event that we're likely to see in our lifetime. Um, listen, um, uh, Dr. Williams, um, gl- climate change is not real. It's not man-made. We couldn't stop it if we tried. By the way, we have no control of it. It's the big flaming ball of fire out there known as the sun. Uh, and it's sun cycles that it goes through that have way more to do with what's going on with climate change. By the way, uh, just, just, just to let you know, um, what, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, carbon credits and things like that, um, on an annual basis, the Earth puts out uh, – humanity puts out about 4% of uh, the carbon that a one volcano puts out in in one eruption, 4%. I mean what you really need to do, if you really think that uh, this has to do with uh, carbon emissions into the atmosphere that's causing global warming, you really need to pass a law against those volcanoes. That's what you really need to do. <sighs> most important event. Uh, Dr. Williams, do you think you can actually do us all a favor and get back to being a churchman? Your job is to actually proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. <sighs> Quote, why is it important? It, it's important because you are going to try to help our leaders lead in the world, the archbishop say, stated. Quote, we have to make it in the case that people of our world are demanding justice in such a way that it's impossible for our political leaders to deny it. Huh? That's why we're here in Copenhagen, and that's why we're marching. That's what we're marching for, he continued. (laughs) This is the most important thing that he's ever done. Um, I am a little bit baffled as to what exactly he's um, marching for. According to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, 2009 is a crucial year in the international effort to address climate change. It doesn't exist. 
Since uh, December 7th and until December 18th, national government delegations who agreed to shape an ambitious international response to climate change in 2007 have been meeting in Copenhagen to agree on a post-2012 climate agreement that will replace the current Kyoto Kyoto Protocol. Under Kyoto, 37 industrial countries are required to cut emissions a total of 5% from 1990 to 2012. And based on the current declarations from wealthy countries, uh, the World Wildlife Fund and for, uh, for Nature estimates that total emissions cut will amount to 10% by 2020. Some scientists, however, say industrialized nations must cut emissions by 25 to 40% from 1990 levels by 2020 to prevent climate disasters. Um, we don't have to worry about that anymore. The whole thing was a hoax. <clears throat> such as coastal flooding from rising sea levels, uh, severe weather events and various uh, variations in rainfall and temperatures that will affect agriculture and wipe out species of plants and animals. We have no control over the weather, folks. Um, despite such claims, you can tax all these people all you want. You can tell them to cut their emissions all they want. We can go back to the Stone Age if you want. It's not going to do anything about the weather. Despite such claims that there is notable disagreement over the exact causes of global climate change, and it's a degree of devastation, uh, while cl- uh, climate change activists insist that humans are to blame for climate change, critics say global warming could be caused naturally by changes such as alterations in the Earth's orbit and solar energy and solar wind output. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, this story was written by Aaron Leakman. Uh, Aaron, um, are you ever going to get around to talking about the uh, the, the fact that the scientists who are telling us that the the climate is going to change so much that, you know, the polar ice caps are going to melt and all that kind of stuff, uh, that uh, they were suppressing evidence that showed the contrary was happening. Hide the decline. You familiar with this theory? <sighs> uh, some even argue that science, contrary to what many leading scientists claim, does not support the claim that increased CO2 in the atmosphere is having a negative effect on the Earth. They say no one currently... Uh, really understands clearly how the earth is responding to the increase in the greenhouse gases and that cap and trade legislation pollution control policy that sets a limit on cap uh, or cap on the amount of pollutants can be emitted could be could do so uh, seriously harm the world's poor without guaranteeing that global warming would decrease. Uh-huh. Despite the uncertainty, a number of prominent religious leaders and faith-based groups are attending the United Nations Summit on Climate Change with the aim to persuade global leaders to support cuts in carbon emissions. <sighs> Quote, let's give them, our leaders, opportunity in the days ahead to do what they need to do, not just for us, not even just for our children, our grandchildren, but for a world given into our hands to treasure, to care, and to share. Archbishop Williams told participants of Saturday's march. Apart from the organization's activists, uh, Saturday's demonstration was also joined by many of the city's people, including a group of youth activists who the police said they rounded up from the tail end of the demonstration in a preventative action. Apparently they were emitting too much carbon. Uh, The climate summit in Copenhagen has drawn participants from 192 countries representing governments, the business community, and civil society organizers have anticipated approximately... 15,000 participants. And this story from the Telegraph in the UK, talk about uh, Jesus Christ being the Lamb of God. Um, School nativities criticized for replacing baby Jesus with sheep in nativity plays. 
<laughs> man. School nativity plays that relegate baby Jesus to a supporting role instead focusing on angels or even sheep have been criticized by the church. <laughs> now, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, you know, I, it's, it's those, those people out there who are not Christians, they are just not interested in carrying the church's water when it comes to the gospel, are they? What does Paul say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Um, and uh, it apparently, uh, by the way, what does Paul say? You know, the, 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 the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Should we be surprised then when uh, public schools in the UK are not all that thrilled about baby Jesus during uh, their their nativity plays? Now, vicars have spoken out against these. Uh, okay, a growing number of schools have uh, scrapped the traditional Mary and Joseph performances in favor of secular alternatives such as Snow White or Scrooge. Oh, man. Others have removed explicitly religious messages from the reenactments of the birth of Christ for fear of upsetting pupils of other faiths. <laughs> this makes no sense. Okay, you're going to have a reenactment of the birth of Christ, but you're going to not have Jesus there. We're going to reenact in our school play the birth of Jesus Christ, but for fear of offending people, uh, the role of Jesus is now going to be played by Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, what is going on? <laughs> oh, man. This is political correctness just run amok. Folks, we need to scrap political correctness just like we need to scrap this whole thing about global warming. We do not need these artificially imposed uh, sanctions on on what is proper speech and what are proper actions, you know, politically correct. This is ridiculous. I mean, we're talking about schools having nativity plays and they're reenacting the birth of Christ, but they... <laughs> But they don't have Jesus. Huh. Now, vicars have spoken out against this watering down of the nativity, cl- complaining that children are not, not being taught the spiritual message of Christmas. Um, whoever these vicars are, I need to remind you, it's not the job of the state to <laughs> teach the spiritual message of Christmas. That's the job of Christians. I have seen performances where the central character was not has not been Jesus. Instead, he's replaced by an angel or a sheep, and I think that's a shame. Yep, it's it is absolutely a shame. Here's the deal: I'm all for if you're going to have a nativity, if you're going to have a, a reenactment of the birth of Jesus, then don't don't cave in and you know and decide to replace him with a sheep or maybe you know Super Mario or something like that. Instead, if you're going to reenact the birth of Jesus, it's important that you actually you know have Jesus there. Um, keep in mind, uh, the baby Jesus uh, is probably the least offensive version of Jesus out there. Uh, he didn't have a lot to say at that age, just wanted to say that. I mean, he's and he was cute and cuddly, you know. Um, oh, man, this is ridiculous. Quote, I, I, I'm a big fan of keeping the nativity as nativity, although I realize the performance has to engage youngsters and there are... And there aren't that many well-written nativities out there. Uh, recent Christmas plays put on by schools near uh, Reverend Windicombe's parish include Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> Whoops, a daisy, uh, angel, and the grumpy sheep. The latter tells the story of lazy, cantankerous sheep who, of a lazy, cantankerous sheep who develops a more cheerful personality 
After traveling to meet Jesus in the Bethlehem stable. Oh, man. No, 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 that's just terrible. <laughs> a cantankerous sheep who develops a more cheerful personality. <laughs> oh, this is just terrible. Last week, retailers reported that parents are ditching homemade nativity play costumes and spending up to 150 pounds on, uh, on, uh, on manger child designer outfits. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. This is just absurd. Seriously, if you're going to have a nativity play and you're going to reenact the birth of Jesus, Jesus needs to show up. If you don't want to do that, then don't have the play. And if you don't want to have, if you don't want to do a reenactment of Jesus, maybe, I, I don't think the, uh, the cantankerous sheep who visits Bethlehem and has a more cheerful disposition is, is even a, a better alternative. Um, hi, yi Folks, uh, once again, I mean, we don't. We, this is what happens. Uh, the state gets a little nervous and iffy about proclaiming the Christian gospel for us Christians. <sighs> Remember, it's our job, not theirs. All right, we are up on our second break. When we come back, it's going to be sermon review time here at Fighting for the Faith. Our sermon re- is the reviewing is entitled um, "Things You Can Ignore But Shouldn't." The voices in my head. There's a big "I told you so" moment coming up in this from LCBC in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The pastor there is David Ashcraft, and uh, it'll be an interesting sermon. And on the discernment scale, I think this one has a as a so- solid seven, possibly an eight. And uh, because the things he's going to be talking about are not bad things, but the problem is, is that they are. Not, he's not preaching them as fruit that flows from repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He's preaching it as legalistic self-righteousness. So uh, definitely want to listen carefully to what we're hearing there. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That is facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, well, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Uh-huh. 
The Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there, and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. <laughs> and just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. Updating my food journal. Yep, still trying to lose weight, trying to become half the man I used to be. 18 and a half pounds, I seem stuck at the moment. Working through it, though, working through it. Added a little bit more rigorous exercise, see if I can kind of ease things along. So it says I, I still have 2,000 calories I can use today. Woohoo! <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> that means I can eat dinner. Yay! All right. <clears throat> That's not what we're here to do. All right. It's uh, sermon review time here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. Time for the sermon review music. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Now, this particular sermon was uh, via referral on Facebook. Uh, Brett Whitmer, who is one of my friends on Facebook, he left a um, note on my wall saying, Chris, this is a megachurch not too far from me. Dig through their sermons and see if you can sit through one. <laughs> Try the latest one. And uh, he points out the fact that uh, the pastor there encourages the congregations to he's, the people in his congregation to read the Bible, but they don't have to believe that it's all true. Yeah, that's that's kind of the I told you so moment coming up in the sermon. More to uh, more coming. But anyway, I want to thank Brett for the heads up on this one. I was not familiar with LCBC. And I've subscribed to their podcast, and I'm beginning to think they may be making some regular appearances here at Fighting for the Faith, especially after this sermon. The sermon, by the way, is entitled, uh, Things You Can't you Can Ignore But Shouldn't, The Voices in My Head. Pastor there is David Ashcraft. LCBC, by the way, stands for Lives Changed by Christ. Uh, notice that somehow the gospel is your changed life. And by the way, that is not the gospel. Your changed life is not the gospel. Keep in mind, when it comes to life change, uh, there in the Bible, 
uh, right after the Book of Maps, there's a little asterisk that says Re- results may vary. If that means it's not really actually technically part of the uh, biblical text, but when it comes to changed lives, yeah, the, the Holy Spirit does change our life. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit that does that through the preaching of the gospel by abiding in Christ. Um, but uh, results may vary. For instance, there's some people out there. I'm going to kill the music. Some people out there, when they have, when they experience life change, they go from the depths of despair to being in a terrible situation and being in bondage to sin and being set free from it. And they go kind of much the same way uh, that the demoniac in that that hung out in the tombs in the Gospels. Uh, that that guy went around naked and they tried to chain him up and he break the change. I mean, talk about a life change. I mean, that guy went from being demon possessed and by a legion of demons, nonetheless, uh, to being in his right mind, clothed and and uh, and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. I mean, and it it freaked people out so much so that they 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 wanted Jesus to leave. Okay, but uh, anyway, um, so I mean, t- that, I mean that's a dramatic example of the life change that could happen as a result of 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then there's like the normal everyday Joe. Okay, the person who, you know, is your garden variety sinner who doesn't really think that they're that much of a sinner uh, may have their life straight, may actually use a day planner and, and, and be, a, you know, and attend a, a decent job and, and care and be married in a lifelong relationship and not cheat on his wife, you know, things like that. And, and that person, you know, when they realize that they are a wretched sinner in need of a savior and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and repent of their wickedness. That person might end up getting, you know, taken, you know, being called to the mission field. And when they get there, they might have their head cut off by uh, natives, you know, know, who basically decide that rather than listening to him preaching the gospel, they think that he would actually taste better as a garnish, you know, on their dinner plate. And so results may vary when it comes to the changed life. Just want to point that out. All right. Without any further ado, here is our sermon today. It's The Things You Can Ignore But Shouldn't, The Voices in My Head uh, by Pastor David Ashcraft of LCBC in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Plenty of things in our lives that we oftentimes ignore, but, but maybe we really shouldn't. And maybe for you, you've got enough Christmas lights plugged into one extension cord that you could light up all of Candy Lane at Hershey Park, but maybe you shouldn't. And there are things that we have in our lives, that things that we experience in our lives, things that we let go in our lives that oftentimes we tend to ignore, but maybe we really shouldn't. And maybe for me, it's like the little light on the dashboard of your car that says maintenance required. And, and that light has been on in our car now for several months, and um, I'm never sure, exa- sure exactly what to do about that particular light because to be honest with you i kind of think it's a plot that the dealers have just to get you back and to spend more money and so i you know that's a that's a decent theory there about the uh, the whole maintenance required light by the way i know for a fact on the uh, pirate christian radio mobile the uh, the the fj cruiser that we have uh, wrapped out with the pirate christian radio uh, very subtle advertising uh, scheme that we have there um that um that every five thousand miles the maintenance required light comes on and all I did was look inside the user manual and found out that if I press the, uh, the odometer button while turning on the vehicle, um, you know, and wait for, you know, and wait for it to count down three seconds, that light just goes away. 
but the whole point of the maintenance required light is it's it's a friendly reminder that you need to get your your vehicle lube and oil changed. So yet yeah, just turning it off may not actually be a wise thing. It might be time to go to Jiffy Lube or to the Walmart, you know, Tire and Lube Express. By the way, that little bit of information advice completely free. Just want to let you know. I tend to ignore that glowing little orange light, and uh, plus during the holiday season, it just adds the color to the festive season and all, and so I tend to leave it. And, and all of us have things in our lives, again, that we tend to regularly ignore, but, but maybe we really shouldn't. And so today we start a new series of studies in which we're going to look at some of the things that we often ignore, but maybe we would be a whole lot better off if we didn't ignore them. Things that, things that really would begin to change our lives. Things that- okay, now listen carefully. Things we shouldn't ignore, but things that would really change our lives. Remember, LCBC, Life's Changed by Christ, that's what LCBC stands for. Um, this is all about life change. Okay. Now, just to kind of let the cat out of the bag, he's going to talk about the importance of reading God's Word. But I want you to listen carefully for why this is important. And I want you to listen carefully to how he presents the problem uh, that somebody might have regarding incorporating God's word into their life. And uh, again, focus again on the why should I be reading this? And it's, gonna, it's rather interesting. It could make our lives much richer as we go in to the new year. And so today we're going to talk about just kind of voices that are in our heads. And, and maybe you don't refer to them as things that are voices in your head, but, but I'm talking about kind of just the different influences, the different things that are trying to kind of influence us or cause us to go certain directions in our life and, and just voices in our head. But, and one of the things that you could ignore as we kind of look at a variety of topics, we're going to just look at some real practical things in this series of studies where we're just going to say, you know what, there are some things in our lives that if we would choose not to ignore them, our lives might be much Okay, so there's some things in our lives, some voices that if we would choose not to ignore them, then our lives would be much richer. Okay, got to come back to the uh, first, second, and third century martyrs in the Christian faith in the Roman Empire. Um, How rich were their lives as they were being zipped up in in animal furs and uh, being fed to the lions in the uh, Colosseum there in Rome. How rich was that? Our lives might be much better for it. And one of the things that you could choose to ignore, but we would suggest you probably don't, are just kind of voices in your head. And there's one voice particularly that you can choose to ignore, but I would suggest you really shouldn't. There's one voice that you may already be ignoring, but you probably shouldn't. And more than likely, you're not ignoring this voice intentionally. You just aren't paying a whole lot of attention to it. And it's a voice that if you would choose to listen to, and my challenge for you as we go into the new year in 2010, is that you say, okay, this is a voice that I'm going to choose not to ignore anymore. I mean, you can, but you probably shouldn't. And it's just simply the voice of God. Uh, okay. Um, now listen, just so you know, he's not going to say that the voice of God is a voice in our head. He's going to talk about the importance of the scripture and reading it. And that being the primary way in which we hear the voice of God, um, which is all well and good, but this kind of begs the question, why, uh, pastor Ashcraft, why is it that you're talking about the Bible and the word of God as a quote voice in our head? It's a little confusing what you're doing here. 
Now, the primary way that we hear the voice of God is by reading the Bible. And that's why the Bible is oftentimes referred to as the Word of God, because it's God's voice speaking to us. And it's an amazing thought that the creator of the universe, the one that holds the universe together, an amazing thought that God of the universe would want to talk to you or that he'd want to talk to me. And yet, incredibly, he does. And, and amazingly, so often we keep ignoring him. And we've got lots of good excuses as to why we ignore the voice of God. Sometimes people will say, you know what, I don't listen to the voice of God because his voice is in written form and and I don't like to read. You know, I'm just not a reader. I I just don't read. And so my excuse is... Okay, now I want to point something out here. He's now presenting the problem. Well, well, you might be somebody who ignores the Bible. And the reason why is because it's written down and you're not a reader. Okay, we got a problem here. Okay, the problem that he is describing is a problem, uh, this does not sound like the behavior of somebody who has been regenerated through the preaching of law and gospel, law to show sins and show your wretchedness and show your need for a savior, and the gospel to uh, to comfort you with the forgiveness of sins. This does not, this does not sound like somebody who's been regenerated by Christ, somebody who despises reading God's word. I mean, in some real way, doesn't this break the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, Doesn't this break the commandment of remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy? The despising of the hearing and the reading of God's word? This is serious stuff here. This is serious stuff. If somebody's doing this, they are guilty of a grievous sin against God. It's not just a whoopsie. Or whoo or a, you know, that's okay, you know, God, different, different strokes for different folks. No, 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 this is a real serious problem that he's presenting here, but he's not really presenting it as all that serious. I hope he talks about the forgiveness of sins for this sin. I just don't like to read. And yet what's interesting is how different our lives might be if we would just take the time to slow down and stop and... and- Okay, so isn't it interesting how different our lives would be if we would just slow down and read God's Word? Hmm, isn't that all about me? And and just read and hear from God and listen to the voice of God. I mean, our marriages would look very different. Our finances would look very different. Okay, keep in mind, there are people who, after repenting and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins... After God the Holy Spirit regenerates them from being a pagan unbeliever to being one who trusts in Christ, who is adopted into the family of God, there are many stories throughout history of people who married, when they do that, their marriage completely falls apart. It doesn't make their life better, it makes it worse, and they suffer persecution by their spouse. I know plenty of people who are adult converts to Christianity, who suffer in their marriage. So keep in mind, though, LCBC, life's changed by Christ. Apparently, this is all about life change. Hmm. We might have raised our children differently, and and we might have dated differently as we were growing up, or we might have handled issues of morality and ethics differently. But instead... So is our problem lack of information? Or is our problem that we are sinful by nature? I mean, is is the Bible just the missing Chilton's manual for the human body? And the way I mean, you know, 
Yeah, see, I got a problem here with this. The reason I have a problem with it is because, you know, he's basically saying the reason I need to read the Bible is so that, you know, I can get the right information so that I can make my life richer. Now, granted, being a Christian, I got to tell you, if it wasn't for the grace of Christ, if it wasn't for being regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, I would be a very different person. In fact, uh, the type of person I would be, the person I would be, is a very frightening thought to me. Because I am capable of some seriously wicked wickedness. And if it wasn't for the check of the Holy Spirit in my life, if it wasn't for the fear and love of God that I have as a result of being brought to faith in Christ, I think I would be a complete monster. So, yeah, being a Christian has made my life richer. Absolutely. I'm convinced of it. But it's a fruit of repentance in my life. It's a fruit of faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, I'm just a branch. Christ is the vine. So he's the one who's bearing fruit in me, through me. I'm not the one bearing the fruit. But see, here's the deal. You know, again, when it comes to life change, results may vary. For whatever reason, where we say, you know, I'm just not a reader. I, I don't like to read or I don't have the time or whatever it is. We choose to ignore the voice of God. But, man, if we'd have got a hold of some of the stuff that God has to say. To you see, again, there, see, there's that problem again. He just makes it sound like it's all no big deal. You choose to ignore the voice of God. That's huge. That is not just a, hmm, no big deal. You willfully refuse to hear the voice of God in the scriptures? Christ, God himself says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Somebody who despises hearing God's word to the point where they refuse to listen to it, that's not a small thing. That's a huge sin. And we're all guilty of it. Yeah to us a little bit earlier and if we had done something with it our lives might look very very different right now but for some reason the most important voice of the world the most important voice in the world that's available to us on a regular basis and um man for some reason we completely ignore it and see the interesting thing is the cool thing for some reason <laughs> for some mysterious reason we just ignore the voice of god <clears throat> and you mind if i chime in here with a little bit of uh, bible uh, because I think the Bible has something to say here. Uh, for instance, we could go to, let's see, let's see, Romans, let's see, the two and three. <sighs> okay. Mm-hmm. All right, let's see here. Uh, well, yeah, let's, let's go with this. Uh, Romans chapter three, verse nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Greeks and Jews are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive the venom of ass. 
rasps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's not that just like, well, for some reason, people just aren't willing to listen to the voice of God. And, uh, you know, the, the Bible actually explains why. <laughs> Because by nature, we are at war with God. Ephesians chapter 2, also I refer to this passage frequently here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 3, we read from the English Sanctified Version, Now you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, uh, uh, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, So this is all bad news stuff. And what's really a little frustrating and sad here is that Pastor Ashcroft is describing a very serious serious sin that all of us are guilty of. This is a very serious sin. And the root of this is our sinfulness and our rebellion against God, our sinful nature. And, and he just kind of throws it out. Well, for some reason, we don't want to listen to the voice of God. Now, this kind of begs the question. If the reason why we don't want to hear the voice of God is because of our sinfulness, because all have sinned and fall short of the God. No one seeks God. No one, uh, all of that, okay? And understand even Christians still deal with their sinful nature. You know, we don't get rid of our sinful nature until we die or Christ returns, okay? But um, but the deal is, is that, uh, you know, we struggle with our sinful nature. Do you think that just telling people, oh, well, listen, listen, I got some great whiffums for you. By the way, whiffums are what's in it for me. This is a sales tactic. Okay, uh, if you act now, okay, you know, the, the, think of the Ginsu knife commercial. They show the, the Ginsu knife. It cuts through blocks of, uh, of cement. It cuts through uh, tin cans. It cuts through tomatoes, and it even makes Julian French fries. Act now, and we'll even throw in a free set of, uh, uh, of sham wows. Okay, it, see, all of that is Whiffham talk. What's in it for me? So do you think that just appealing to somebody in their sinful nature and telling their sinful nature, Hey, there's some big benefits for you here. You know, basically this is an appeal to the flesh, to the sinful nature to get them to read God's word. This is not how this is done. Yeah. This is not, this is not the biblical approach. Instead, the biblical approach, the, the approach the apostles took, that Jesus took is to call people to repentance and show them that they're very, that the fact that they do not want to hear God's word is proof of their wickedness and their need for a savior and shows that they do not love God. For if they truly were, if they truly did love God, they could not help but want to hear his word. You see the difference here? You see, you see what the, the, the difference is going on here? All right, we continue. Thing. 
about God speaking to you is as you begin to read God's word, as you listen to God's word, what you find is it's incredibly personal because it's the God who created you that's speaking to you. And and so somebody who knows you because he created you. And beyond that, it's also extraordinarily current because it reaches into every single realm of your life. And so it's very relevant. It's timeless information and timeless principles and timeless truths. And it was certainly the Bible is relevant and and the truth in there is timeless. But you're kind of missing the bigger issue here. Okay, you've you've identified a problem that people don't want to hear God's word, but you haven't correctly identified where that problem lies and what the real solution is. It's a call to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And through the working of the Holy Spirit, then God creates the appetite for his word in his believers, in those he's adopted, those he's regenerated, those he's replaced their heart of stone with the heart of flesh. God is the one who creates that appetite for his word. We continue. And so it's very personal, it's very current, and it's also immediate. And from, immediate from the standpoint that we can integrate this information into our lives right away. And had we done that earlier... Uh, the Bible is not a, 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 is not a bunch of information that you can, quote, integrate into your life right away. That is a complete misunderstanding of what God's Word is and what it's for. Just information for integration into our life to make it better? Notice, this is an appeal to the sinful nature. Hey, listen, just read God's word. It'll make your life better. Trust me. So what? Moral improvement and an enriched life do not make somebody a Christian. Somebody can actually apply God's law to their lives and make it better and not have faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They could live outwardly moral lives, and yet they're not saved. Had we paid attention to this particular voice in our heads, many of our lives would look very different. And John Wooden was the basketball golf coach at UCLA. And over one 12-year stretch of time from the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s, John Wooden led his team to 10 national championships. And he coached players like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton and Gail Goodrich. And he's just a remarkable coach. And I'm told that he's a remarkable man as well. And as successful as John Wooden was as a coach, he was very big on the fundamentals, on the details. He really paid attention. He was a stickler for detail. And one of his favorite sayings was, little things make big things happen. Little things make big things happen. And so he would stress the little things, even things that his players would kind of look at and and think, why are we doing this? I mean, one of the things that he was legendary for was when his players would come and they were going to sit under his leading, his mentoring, his coaching and learn how to play the game of basketball. He would spend the first time he got together with them talking about the art of putting on your socks correctly. And he would say to them, you know, there's an art to putting on your socks. And then he would repeat to them, little things make big things happen. And I want to suggest to you that something as little as reading God's word, something as small as listening to the voice of God can make a big difference and make big things happen in your life. And those of you who grew up taking this whole thing seriously, or those of you... Okay, keep in mind, listen, like I said, you can apply the principles that are in God's word and in God's law to your life, and it'll make a big difference in your life. You're, you might even have, you might even experience, and those around you might experience seeing you have an improvement in your moral character. But that improvement in your moral character won't save you. You might make better decisions about life. 
but those better decisions won't save you. The thing I'm I'm really worried about here is that it sounds to me, and I hope I'm wrong, that David Ashcraft here is preaching the fruit of repentance without preaching repentance. He's preaching the fruit of faith without preaching faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I know for a fact that partway through the sermon, you're going to hear him mention in, in, in a very rapidly moving gospel nugget something about uh, trusting in Christ as your Savior. But no explanation will be given as to what that means. We continue. You either grew up in a home where you had a mom or a dad that would emphasize to you the importance of this particular voice in your head, that they would stress to you the importance of reading your Bible. You would say, you know what? My life is richer because of it. My life is better because of it. And I can't imagine having gone through my teenage years or my 20s or 30s or my first years of marriage without having the input of this extraordinarily helpful body of information that we know as the Bible that's the voice. The input from this extraordinarily helpful body of information. Really. That's what the Bible is, is just an extraordinarily helpful body of information. Granted, I mean, yeah, sure, it's that. But isn't it much more than that? Because in the scriptures, we find Christ and this overarching story of God stepping into human history to save us, sinners. And throughout the pages of of the scriptures, we see men who trusted in the promises of God and it was reckoned to them as righteousness. Not that they were righteous people because all the guys in the Old Testament, I mean, all of them are sinners. David, the uh, the murderer, adulterer. Moses, the murderer. Uh, you know, you got Jacob, the liar. Um, Abraham, the liar. Isaac, the liar. Noah, the drunk. Um, you see what I'm saying here? Um, the thing that was most important in all of their lives wasn't their moral improvement. It was their faith and trust in God, their faith and trust in Christ, their faith and trust in the promises of God regarding their salvation that would be fulfilled in Christ. Voice of God that's speaking to us. And I would tell you, I'm one of those people. One of the really fortunate people who grew up in a home where early on my parents gave me a Bible and they showed me how to read it and they showed me how where to start with it and they taught me to memorize verses, things that still come to mind for me even today. And I look back and as I navigated adolescence and navigated college and navigated the whole dating thing and figuring out who to marry and what it looks like and stuff, I, I look back at my life and I think, you know what, had I had not had that? Had I not grown up in a home, an environment where I was almost forced to pay close attention to the Bible and to read it and to integrate it into my life, um, you know, I don't know what my life would look like today. And, and so I give credit to my family and thanks to my family and growing up in a good church where I was told to pay attention to the voice of God and read the word of God. And maybe you're one of those people. Or maybe you're one of those people that have said, you know what, I, I've tried I've tried reading the Bible. I've tried listening to God's word. And man, it is just so hard. It's hard to understand. And can I just say, I understand that it can be difficult to develop the discipline of just listening to the voice of God on a regular basis. But let me tell you what's really hard, okay? I mean, what's really hard is when you make a really, really stupid decision in your 20s that still haunts you in your 30s and 40s. I mean, that's... Okay, notice here, though. Okay, okay. you make a stupid decision in your 20s that still haunts you in your 40s. Yikes. Um, listen, yeah, bad decisions uh, have a tendency to kind of linger in our life for a long time. 
But that's not really the bigger issue. The bigger issue is is that those sins committed in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, uh, not only do they haunt you into your 60s, uh, when you crump and die, um, they will haunt you in the sense that you are accountable to God for those sins. And here he's presenting them as it's just really kind of like bad life choices that have, you know, bad consequences, just, well, unpleasant consequences that, that can really take away from the overall experience of a more richer life. And if you just you know, had gotten the information, you made it, made it might have been made some better decisions. Oh boy, this is not a this is not a good treatment of sin at all. A very very bad treatment of it. And he's not calling sin what it is. And what about the eternal consequences, Pastor? That's what's really hard. I mean, what's really hard is making a really, really bad value judgment that's going to haunt you into the next chapter of your life. Or what's really hard is making a poor choice in terms of who you marry or how you conduct yourself in your marriage. I mean, that's what's really hard. No, what's really hard is sinning against a holy and just God is going to throw your carcass in hell. Now, granted, um, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit does impact your parenting, does impact your marriage, hopefully for the better. Sometimes for the worse, especially if you have an unbelieving spouse. Uh, But again, the bigger issue here is the thing that's kind of missing. This is an appeal to sinful flesh to make a decision to read God's word for the very purpose of achieving a more fulfilling and satisfying and richer and deeper life. This is not about repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and the new birth, being born again of the Spirit. This is something different. What's hard is raising your kids in a way that doesn't take them to the place that you want them to be. And now they're 17 and you're thinking, man, if we could just do this differently, if we could just push rewind and start over. I mean, that's what's really hard. And see, that's if somebody is despising God's word while they're parenting. Isn't that the bigger issue that they're despising God's word? So I would just say, you know what? Yeah, it may take some discipline. Slow down and just listen to the voice of God. But, man, I just really want you to read your Bible. And and you say, you know. Okay, so the reason why you want me to read, you just really want me to read my Bible so that, you know, I can experience a fuller and richer life. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure I even necessarily believe it. But can I say, you don't read anything because you believe it's all true. Listen carefully. He just he's encouraging people to read the Bible, even if they don't necessarily believe it or believe it's all true. This is the I told you so moment. Let me play this out a little bit more. I mean, there's not one single thing that you'd say, okay, the reason I'm going to sit down and read this is because I think everything in it is true. You don't read the newspaper because you say, I believe everything in it. If you were to go home and we were to look at the magazines in your house, we wouldn't find magazines that you'd say, I believe everything in here is true. And see, the reason you read anything, it's never because you believe it's all true. And so, man, I would just say, just start reading the Bible, the Word of God, listen. Okay, so you have somebody who doesn't even believe that the Bible's true, necessarily true, but you want them to read the Bible so that they can have a richer life. Uh, Pastor Ashcraft, this is what we call unbelief. 
And you as a pastor, you're called to defend and proclaim uh, the word of God. Inerrant, inspired, all scripture is God breathed and is profitable for correction, rebuke, rebuke and training in righteousness. Correcting, correcting, teaching, you know, you, you got it. You see what I'm saying here? Uh, at this point, wow, the, the presenting problem that you're, you're, you've given us is unbelief. And the solution is just read your Bible? Wow, the biblical solution is repentance. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins for this unbelief. Wow. And by the way, the whole I, got, I told you so moment, it, it, this is all what uh, for, for, for a long time now, I have been saying of the seeker-driven movement and its emphasis, you don't need an in, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. You just need advice that works. The important thing is that you've got practical information that you can apply that will make your life better. You don't need an inerrant word of God for that. You don't even need the Bible to be true. You don't even need a crucified and risen Savior. You just need advice that works. Pastor Ashcraft has demonstrated what I've been saying for years perfectly well. You don't even need to believe it's true. Just read it because it'll make your life better. That's the argument thus far. Wow. Listening to the voice in your head, you don't have to believe it's all true. Just start reading it. And so today I want us to look at a passage that kind of explains how the Bible, the Word of God, how the voice of God can be real and practical in your life. And so let me ask you, if you brought your Bible with you, how the voice of God can be real and practical in your life. The voice of Oprah can be real and practical. The voice of Dr. Phil can be real and practical in my life. The voice of Eckhart Tolle, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, the, the, the voice of Confucius. In fact, those fortune cookies from time to time that I get at those Chinese restaurants, they could be a source of some really interesting things and practical advice in my life. Notice what he's doing here. He's not calling the sin what it is. He's watering down what the Bible is. A, a book of advice and information that can make your life richer. And you don't even have to believe it. You just need to read it and apply it. This is faithless Christianity that he's proclaiming here. A faithless Christianity is a Christless Christianity is a crossless Christianity. You don't need a crucified and risen Savior for this. You just need to be diligent and apply yourself to the discipline of reading God's word so that you can mine out that practical advice to make your life better. This is works without faith. Open it up to Psalm chapter 119. If you didn't, there's some there in the seats beside you. Psalm 119 is page 470. 470 in the Bibles there at your seats. And Psalms are written by the most, for the most part by a man named David. And one of the cool things about this passage is that this is a passage written by a man that he's just saying, look, this is my story. This is what God's word has meant to me. This is what it's done for me. And, and what's interesting, it could be your story. It could be my story as well. And when David is writing these words, probably for him. Okay, notice he said, this is David's story. And it can be your story and my story as well. As long as we're talking about repentance and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, yeah, it could be our story. Let's see what he says. 
Him, he only had the first seven books of the Bible to his disposal. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Ruth, and, and Judges. And, and he probably had those seven books, and they were written hundreds of years before he was even born. And so David's going to refer to himself reading God's law or reading God's word, and he's reading something that was written hundreds of years before he was born. And the reason why I tell you that is because sometimes I'll hear people say, well, you know what? I don't know that I want to read the Bible because it's just such an old book. I mean, it's so old. It was written and it's talking about things that happened thousands of years ago. And, and yet here's what David says about literature that was written hundreds of years before he came along. And he only had the first seven books and maybe not the most interesting seven books of the Bible, but they were all he had. And so here's what he says about listening to the voice of God in his head. Let me begin reading verse 97, Psalm 119, page 470. Did you catch that? Listening to the voice of God in his head. No, it's in the Bible. Not in his head, in the Bible. Weird. David's talking. He says, oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. David says, I love listening to the voice of God. I love God's instructions. You're like, you love it? What do you mean you love it? What do you love about it? He goes on to explain. He says, I think about them all day long and realize... This is the king, and it's not like he didn't have anything to do. It's not like he was just sitting around trying to think of things to think of. Instead, he says, throughout my day, he says, God, your instructions, they come to mind, and I think about them over and over. And kind of makes me stop and wonder, what do you think about all day long? What do I think about all day long? And how- now, this is an important question. What do you think about all day long? Okay. Remember, the scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Okay. Anytime you are not doing that, you are sinning. You're falling short of what God has called you to do. So he's preaching the law here. Okay, this is law. But he's not really pushing it as that. And if the solution to me not thinking thoughts about God is me just trying harder, we've skipped the cross. We can't be doing that. Because if I'm not, if I'm guilty of not loving God with all my heart and despising his word, then I need to be brought back to the cross and told again of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name for that sin. See it for what it is. Call it what it is. Confess it for what it is and receive the forgiveness of sins for it. How do the things that I think about impact my decisions all day long? Because the things I think about, they do impact the decisions that I make. And what about the things you think? Man, I'm talking about something completely different than this guy is here. Something completely different. So, Because if I'm focusing on the things of God, then, you know, I, it's going to impact the decisions I make on a day-to-day basis. Make them much better. Uh, where This is obedience without faith. This is works without faith. This is works without trust in Christ. Think about how do they impact the decisions you make all day long? Because they do impact your decisions. And David says, you know what? God, I love your instructions. And I've learned to incorporate them into my thoughts all day long. It goes on, verse 98. It says, your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. And he says, your commands make me wiser than my enemies. And here's why. 
See, because the Bible, as you read it, we discover God's views of the world. And we begin to discover how God sees the world working and what he values the most. And through God's instructions, we begin to see from his perspective what doesn't work in the world. This is true, but it doesn't take faith to learn how God thinks and and adjust your life so that you can kind of get the inside track using God's information to making your life better. You can do that without trusting in Christ. And that's kind of what it sounds like this guy is proclaiming here. And so David says, I've saturated my mind with your instructions, God, and I've discovered how things work. And he says, now I'm wiser than most of my enemies. And David says, your ways, God, they're my constant guide, which means he saturated his mind with the instructions of God so that when he's trying to make decisions, they just naturally come to mind. And it's just, he doesn't have to stop and say, okay, let's look this up in a book. He says, I just, it just kind of happens. And when I'm making decisions, your instructions come to mind and they come to mind during the day and they come to mind during critical times of decision-making as a king. And he says, I've saturated my mind with your law. Consequently, your law, your ways, your thoughts are constantly with me. Verse 99 says, yes, I have more insight than my teachers for I am always thinking of your laws. Now insights are really just the ability to take unrelated things in such a way that you can kind of see things that other people miss. You begin to see things differently than others. I mean, that's what an insight is. Insight is when you look at two or three or four, maybe five things that are totally unrelated and everybody else looks at them, they don't see anything. But you look at them and you begin to see, okay, this is how it all fits together. I mean, insight is when everybody else looks at something, they just kind of see the dots, the pieces. But you look at it and you see the whole big picture. And Yeah, you want to be able to see the whole big picture? Just read the Bible. Imagine how much better your life will be if you can just intuitively see the whole big picture. Um, um, kind of a crass reason for reading the Bible, don't you think? So that you can be wiser than people? Notice this is all presented in a with them fashion, without any repentance, without calling uh, the sin of unbelief what it is, and pointing him to the cross for the forgiveness of that sin of unbelief. No, no, no. Let me tell you about the Bible, man. Dude, it's got the inside scoop. I mean, we're talking about the very thoughts of God here. There's some principles here. You apply these things to your life. Bam! Your life's going to be better, man. Better for three easy payments of 19.95 a month. You can have the inside track and learn how to intuitively see the big picture. Because of insight and wisdom, you're able to read between the lines and you're able to relate to things that other people can't relate to. And so consequently, you see things that other people don't see. And David says, look, because I've been saturating my mind with your instructions, God, I've got more insight than people who are further along in life than me. And I've got more insight than all of my teachers. And and why? You say, well, because I've been thinking about God's laws, David says. And, And wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love to be the person, somebody that can just look at things and you... Yeah, wouldn't you love to be like the person who can... Come on, think about it, man. You just got to get yourself some Bible in your life so you can get the inside scoop, the inside track. It'll help you get ahead at work, man. Think about it. You want to you be able... You know, that guy you're competing with over the other cubicle? You want to be able to get the raise and, and, and get promoted? You, you just need some biblical insight, man. It'll get you the inside track. It'll supercharge your life. You begin to see things differently because, again, you've saturated your mind with God's ways. And verse 100 says, I'm even wiser than my elders, for I've kept your commandments. 
I'm wiser than my elders, which means I'm wise beyond my years. In other words, he says, people kind of say to me sometimes, David, they say, you know, how do you know that? You know, you're so young. You haven't had enough time to experience that many things. How do you know these things, David? And he says, well, well, I filled my mind with the thoughts of God. And God knows everything. And God knows how. See, if you read the Bible, you can be wise beyond your years. Come on, think about it, man. You, you, you don't want to have to, you, you don't want to have to wait till you're old to be wise. Read the Bible. You can have the inside track, dude. How things work, and he knows how things don't work. And so consequently, David says, as I talk to my elders, as I talk to people that are further along in their journey than me, then he says, you know what? I find that I've got more understanding than they do. And, or I'm wiser my, than their, my elders, he says, the last part of verse 100, because I have kept God's commandments. And one of the things you need to just understand is the Bible says... Okay, the way you begin to really understand things, the way you begin to have real insight is when you choose to not only read God's Word, listen to God's Word, but when you choose to obey it and actually do it. It's obedience to God that brings insight, that brings clarity. And gaining insight goes further than just knowing what God says. Okay, the problem here is that they're disobedient and you're just basically giving them a solution to obey. Just become obedient. So the solution for their lack of belief, for their lack of trust, for despising God's word is to just tell them to obey. The solution is the law, not Christ in the gospel. We've got a problem. It actually comes to the point where you start doing what God says. It involves obeying the words of God and and. So often we don't really think of it that way. We think, okay, let's just kind of know what God says. And, and then we even talk to God. We say, God, if you'll just tell me what you think, where things are going to go down the road, tell me how my life is going to end up. If I choose to go this way or that way, can you just show me, God, where that's going to take me? And I know you want me to go this way, but God, show me where that's going to go. And God says, you know, I'll, I'll tell you which way to go. And then once you go there, then you're going to have a lot of insight as to, ah, that's why God wanted me to go that way. But to, all the way through the Bible, we're taught, that man, you obey God first, and then you're going to have incredible insight. And so, what that so throughout the Bible, we're taught you obey God first, then you're going to have incredible insight. Well, if that's the case, then none of us gets to have any incredible insight because none of us obeys God. Remember, the obedience demanded from the law is perfect obedience. How are we going to get that? Man, this is a problem. That means for you and for me, there'll be times in our lives where we've got to say, God, you know what? I don't get this. I don't even like what you're saying to me, but you say to go that way. And so I'm going to choose to go that way. And what we discover is that when we choose to obey, when we choose to go the way God asks us to go, then we begin to have understanding of what's going on. But, but all of us have this voice inside of us that says, why, why God, why are you telling me to go that way? Why are you allowing this to happen in my life? God, why why is this going on? And we're constantly saying, why? But as you read the Bible, you discover there are times when God says, you know what? I just want you to obey me because if I tried to tell you why right now, you wouldn't understand it. But if you'll go ahead and choose to obey me, then you're going to begin to understand, but you're not going to understand. Yeah, see, here's a problem, Pastor. Uh, the people that you've been describing in the problem, they haven't been obeying God. And now the solution for them is to just choose to obey God. You've skipped over the whole part about the fact that those are sins that they need to repent of and receive the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. That's, that whole part is missing. 
This is just naked obedience without faith. This is the this is the obedience of the Pharisees. Pharisees didn't trust in Christ, but they quote obeyed God. Oh boy. Understand until you do what I ask you to do. And see what's interesting is it's on the backside of obedience. On the what? On the backside of obedience, we can actually get over the hump and get get onto the backside of obedience. Really, when? Uh, uh, just uh, Pastor Ashcraft, I would like to know uh, when did you start obeying God perfectly? Because when you because remember what does Christ say? Be ye perfect. The, the the law demands perfect obedience and daily perfect obedience in thought, word, and deed, and motive, everything. And yet the scripture says that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. So when do we get on the, quote, backside of obedience? Pastor Ashcraft, did you sin today or yesterday? And if you sinned yesterday or today, how can you say you're on the, quote, backside of obedience? That you begin to have clarity about your life. It's on the backside of obedience where you begin to have extraordinary insight. On the backside of obedience, not only will you breathe a sigh of relief that you've made it through, you've done what God asked you to do and you're still alive, but, but, but it's on the backside where you say, you know what? Man, I never understood why God was asking me to do what he did, but, but now, now I'm beginning to understand. And so David says, you know what? I've got more understanding than my elders because I've learned to obey your instructions. You do understand the big thing about David is that he was a man of faith and that his obedience flowed from as a fruit of his faith and his, and his trust in Christ. Our obedience, our good works is a fruit of our faith. You're preaching obedience without faith. That's not good. Obedience without faith is not pleasing to God at all because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. God, and as I obey, then I look back and I go, okay, now I understand. Now I understand why you allowed me to experience this in life. Now I understand why you allowed me to go through this, but it's on the backside of obedience that we have clarity. And in- there is no such thing as the backside of obedience unless you're already dead or resurrected in Christ. The backside of obedience. Make it sound like, you know, some mountain you climb, and then once you get over, once you summit the mountain of obedience, you're on the backside of it, and then you get to see and understand everything. Well, that's the case, and none of us gets to see and understand anything because none of us summits the obedience mountain, ever. Who can you say? Can you point to anybody who's summited the obedience mountain? I can, Jesus Christ. Inside. Oh, and by the way, his, his perfect righteousness... His perfect obedience is given to me as a gift by faith. Read Philippians 3, not having a righteousness of our own that comes to the law, but the righteousness that is, that's Christ's. It's imputed to us. Right, and verse 101, David says, I've refused to walk on any evil path so that I may remain obedient to your word. I haven't turned away from your regulations for you have taught me well. And I love this. And here's what I wish all of us would walk away from this today with the idea that David says, when I open up God's word, when I begin to listen to the voice of God, when I begin to reflect and meditate on God's instructions, he says, I feel like it's as though God himself is personally teaching me. And again, what an amazing thought to think that God himself would personally teach me, that God himself would want to personally teach you. And 
So here's what I know. Anybody that's ever spent much time reading God's Word, whether it's five minutes in the morning or, or the evening or whether you have what you call a quiet time or a devotional time or a prayer time, whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, anybody that's spent any amount of time opening up God's Word and listening to His voice on a regular basis, there have been many times where you're reading along and they'll just kind of say, you know what, it feels like God is speaking directly to me from the Bible. We just go, man, how did He know? It just feels like God is talking to me, and this happens so extraordinarily often. And, and here's why this is so important. So you spend a lot of your time. If you're a person that prays, if you're a person that believes in God, all of us spend a lot of time trying to get God to do certain things for us. And we talk to God. By the way, I just want to point out the fact the Pharisees, who Jesus had a running battle with uh, during his earthly ministry, he said of the Pharisees, he said to them in uh, in John chapter 5, uh, verses 39 and 40, he says, You diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They were being taught by God. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Folks, the scriptures are about Jesus and what he's done. This guy is preaching the scriptures as, a, as basically a trevor, treasured trove of information of God teaching you personally how to make your life better. And you just need to summit the mountain of obedience and get on the backside of it so that you can understand it. This is pure works righteousness. This is faithless obedience. Faithless obedience cannot save you. It might make your life better here on earth. Those Pharisees, you know, they, they, they were doing pretty well. But they didn't trust in Christ. The scriptures, according to Jesus, bear witness about him. I'm not hearing anything about Jesus here. God, and we say, God, you know, if you would just do this for me. But what if God isn't so much wanting to do things for you? What if God just wants to say things to you? What if he's not just all about doing the things you want him to do, but what if he actually wants to say something to you? And see, we're all good at really trying to get God to do something for us, but what if he wants to say something? What if we would just stop and listen and... Because see, if your prayers are like most people's prayers or even my prayers, our prayers are full of, God, help me. You know, God, do this for me. Bless me. Stop this from happening in my life. Or God, do that in my life. Or God, would you provide this for my life? And, but instead of doing something, what if God was more interested in speaking into our lives and saying something to us? And, and what if the primary method with which God is going to speak into our lives is through his word, the written word of God. And well, the written word of God is the method by which God speaks into our life. I completely agree with you here, but if the scriptures bear witness about Christ, and I'm not hearing anything about him and trusting in him for the sin of unbelief that you so, well, you, you, you described, but failed to name what it was. What if the Bible really is the voice of God? speaking to those of us who believe in God. And David says, look, that's how I see it. He says, when I read your word, God, I feel like you are my teacher, that you yourself are teaching me. And verse 103, how sweet your words taste to me. They're sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. He says, I read your instructions, and God, your commandments, your ways, your instructions have shaped my values. They've shaped my understanding of what's right and wrong. Your commands have shaped the way I see the world. And, and they do. But this is obedience without faith. This is a problem. They've reshaped my priorities. And, and then he closes with this very familiar verse, verse 105. He says, God, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. When you realize what David's saying here, 
You want to say, wait a minute, David. God's words were written hundreds of years before you ever came along. How can something written hundreds of years before you ever came along be a lamp to your feet? And David says, you know what? Man, it's a personal thing. David, he says, it's as though God himself is talking to me. It's as though God knows the circumstances of my life. And David says, that's exactly how it is. God knows the circumstances of my life. And the picture is somebody walking down a very, very dark alley, and they don't know where to step, and this light appears, and and it just shines their way along the path. And, And David says, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light for my path. In other words, he says, God, your words, they're extraordinarily personal. And as I read and listen to your voice, I just, I'm amazed. His words are extraordinary, per, extraordinarily personal. Ah. Amazed at how personal they are. And what's interesting about this is this isn't big theology he's talking about. He's not saying here, okay, when we read the Bible, then it's whatever the pastor can figure out because only the pastor can figure out what the Bible's saying because he's the only one that's been to seminary. And David isn't saying that. David lived in a time and he wrote these words in a time when, when academics were really not a big part of the culture and academics were certainly not a big part of David's life. I mean, he was just doing the basics, just trying to get by. He was doing the little things that make big things happen. And so you read the life of David and there's nothing about his elementary David was doing the little or high school. he was doing the little things that caused the big things to happen. This is all law. There is no good news here at all. Whew, faithless, Christless law, just naked obedience. Good luck. I hope you can do it. How's it working out for you, by the way? school or college or grad school days because he didn't have them. This was a guy that was just fighting for his life. David was thrust into a situation, not some big intellectual pursuit. He was a guy desperate to be in touch with God because all of a sudden he's the king of this entire kingdom and he's just... No, because from even from his boyhood, he trusted in God. He had faith. He had saving faith even from a child. <sighs> desperate for direction from God and and so David says, look, I'm going to read, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to reflect. I'm going to listen to your voice, God, and I'm going to meditate on it, I'm going to reflect. I'm going to read, meditate, and reflect. And, and God, you know, I'm just a simple man. And so, so David said, I'm just a shepherd, I'm a warrior, I've made millions of mistakes, and, and I don't even know why I'm here, God. But I- Those are called sins, not that he made millions of mistakes. He committed some pretty heinous and grievous sins. But I really need you to speak to me. And I need you to speak to me the way you've spoken to others that have come before me. And so David says, this is how it happens. He says, when I open up your words and I read and I reflect on your words, he says, God, it's as though you're speaking to me directly. And I would love for all of us to have that experience as though God himself were teaching us. If you've been reading through the New Testament with us this year, then just this week you read an incredibly powerful promise of God that speaks directly to this thing and that we're talking about, of, of God. You see, the pastor just wants you to experience this. I mean, it's important that you experience this. How about they experience the forgiveness of their sins? They experience what it feels like to suffer terror at knowing that they are guilty before a just God who has every right to throw them into hell. And the comforting words of the forgiveness of sins because of what Christ has done for them on the cross. <sighs> Himself teaching us. First John chapter 2, verse 27, it's on the screens in front of you. And it says, to those of us that are trusting Jesus as our Savior, to those of us 
that are children of God. He says, you have received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know and what he teaches is true. It's not a lie. In other words, he's saying, when you read the Bible, you've got God's spirit in you and he's going to teach you. He's going to guide you. He's going to direct you. And and David says, when that happens, it's as though God himself, when I read the Bible, it's like God himself is speaking to me. Can I just tell you, I, I want that so badly for each of us. If you're a teenager, I want that for you to experience God speaking to you. If you're a mother or a father, then I want you to experience God speaking to you. I want your children to experience it as well. And I- you, you want them just to experience God speaking to them. You do understand that everybody is going to experience God speaking to them face to face on the day of judgment. That face to face speaking will go well for some and not well for others. But they'll hear the voice of God with their own ears. Quite an experience, I'm sure. And I want it so badly for each and every one of us. And, and it comes for each of us when we're willing to just open up and read and reflect and meditate. When we're willing, when we're willing. Boy. Meditate on God's word and just doing the little things that make big things begin to happen. And so let me tell you what we're going to challenge ourselves to do in the year 2010. And you can. Here comes the challenge. The challenge is, by the way, law. You can choose to ignore this. You don't have to do it. And, and, you know, you can go on with your life the way it is now. But let me just challenge you not to ignore this and not to ignore the voice of God. And so here's what we're going to encourage all of us to do. Beginning January 1st, we're going to challenge each other to read through the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs has 31 chapters. And so the challenge is read one chapter a day, read through the book of Proverbs in a month, and then we're actually going to challenge ourselves to read through Proverbs. Why are we going to read Proverbs? Because we trust in Christ. It's a natural outcropping of of uh, a life forgiven by Christ in light of God's mercy and the sanctifying work of God in our life, all gift. Or is it? Is there a whiffum attached to it? You know, we're going to read the book of Proverbs so we can be wiser than anyone else. Listen. Proverbs 12 times, once a month, as we go through the year 2010. And the book of Proverbs is just loaded with incredible wisdom. So by the end of 2010, if you stay with it, you will have read through it 12 times. And, and it's so loaded with wisdom with God that I think I can almost guarantee you that by the time you've read through it 12 times... When it comes to next year, you're going to be a different person. You will be different and people will say, where did you get that wisdom? How did you understand this kind of thing? How do you see life that way? And it's going to be because God has changed. There's the whiffum. He's selling it here. No repentance, no forgiveness of sins. Just do this so that you'll have the inside track and people go, wow, you're so wise. Well, thank you. It's because I decided to make a decision to, to go with my pastor's challenge this year. And I decided to read the book of Proverbs every month, every once a month for 12 months. And I am just wiser than wise now. I'm so glad that you recognize my wisdom by my good decision that I made to read the book of Proverbs. In your life, you're beginning to see things the way God sees things. And see, what I know is that one of the voices in your head is the voice of your heavenly father and you need to listen to it. And It's not enough just to show up and listen here on the weekends. It's not enough that you just pray and talk to God because so often when we pray and talk to God, we're just saying, God, give me, give me, give me, do this for me. It's not enough. It's not enough. That's la, la, la. And 
And what if he doesn't really want to do anything for you? What if he just wants to say something to you? And, and you don't want to... I don't even know what he means by that. I don't want to miss what God is saying to you. So I want you to read your Bible to begin to do the little things that will make big things happen in your life. And as you do, my desire for you, my prayer for you, is that you'll begin to hear the voice of God more loudly, more clearly than all the other voices in your head. Everything else that's trying to influence you, you will hear more loudly and clearly the voice of God. Heavenly Father. All right, there you have it. Uh, supposedly about not ignoring the voice that in your head that you should be listening to, uh, the voice of God. Listen, folks, you can read the Bible all you want. You can even apply the principles that you uh, that that it teaches. You can even learn how to obey God the way uh, God has said to, you know the things to, that you need to do to obey God. In fact, there's a guy out there who's not even a Christian who uh, you know did he, he did a year of living biblically, you know, a year of living like Jesus. You can do all that, but it doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't give you faith, and it doesn't mean that you've repented of your sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And without faith and without understanding that uh, that all of the obedience that flows from men like David and Moses and Abraham, uh, that those all flow from their faith and trust in God and their faith and trust in Christ, the coming Savior for them, uh, then you've missed the whole point. And you're talking about faithless obedience, which, by the way, doesn't please God. Uh, because you are a wretched sinner in need of a savior, and you're, you even need to be saved from your good works. Your good works are tainted with sin. They are as filthy rags. This is not biblical Christianity. It's fine advice for making your life better. I mean, you know, you gotta make sure you don't want to make some mistakes that, you know, linger into your forties and fifties. Uh, but the big thing you gotta worry about is that sin for which you're gonna be judged at the end of your life. Yeah, I'm going to say that. By the way, the only solution for that, Christ and him crucified for your sins. Repent of your wickedness and trust in Christ for the forgiveness offered to you because of what he's done for you on the cross. You diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, yet they are the very scriptures that testify of me, Jesus says. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. They're all about Jesus. They're not about getting inside tips to make you wiser. And people sit there and go, wow, you're so wise. Well, folks, we're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio as you're getting ready to consider your year-end contributions to the people that you contribute to during the year-end. Uh, please consider Fighting for the Faith. And right now we're looking for a 1,000 of our listeners to join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. It is a mere $6.95 a month, and you join by visiting fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button, and remember, right after your uh, your your membership is processed, you will, you will see a button that says Pirate Cove uh, Access Information. Click here. Don't forget to do that so that you can uh, gain access instantly to our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove, which is a value-added that we offer for all of our crew members. And, of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can do so by clicking the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. 
Well, what'd you think? What'd you think of that uh, particular sermon? What'd you think of anything talked about here at, today at Fighting for the Faith? Would love to get your feedback. You can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. Amen.